Hey, would you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Daniel? We're going to be talking about Daniel and the time of the exile in our series as we continue uh, taking a look at the great themes of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. I want to thank Pastor Jason for speaking these last couple weeks. The one time was planned when we had our wedding, and I wasn't going to speak on the 13th, but then uh, last or the week before we had gotten sick and so Jason filled in and I really appreciate that. He did a a great job on the message last Sunday. And today we're continuing our look uh, by uh, studying the book of Daniel which again uh, as Jason had expressed I mean there's just so many rich things in these passages that it's hard to limit it sometimes and come and pick it out on what are you going to focus on each week. So I hope that you've done the reading ahead of time because there's a lot that's there and I'm going to refer to it as we go through this text. Let's begin with prayer. Father, as we come to your word today, I'm excited about this passage in Daniel. Uh, He's one of the great men in scripture that we look to as an example. A man of courage and conviction, a man who understood the times in which he lived and didn't allow the circumstances around him to become uh, bitter or to give up hope, but instead he stood strong and you used him to be a witness to the nations. Father, by his faith, he still speaks today. And so would you use these passages we're going to look at this morning to encourage us and help us to stand firm too. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, did you know that during World War II, there were more than 15 prisoner of war camps in Minnesota? That's a part of uh, our history that a lot of people who live here even are not aware of. Uh, One of those prisoner of war camps was actually in my hometown of Warren, Minnesota. The Germans who were captured during World War II were brought here to work. And they worked on farms or on the railroad. Some of them worked in factories in these different areas where these prisoner of war camps were. And can you imagine what it must have been like for them to be taken, you know, across the ocean, thousands of miles from their home, to a new land, a new culture, new language, all of these things that were foreign to them as they began to experience life in this land as prisoners of war. Well, the truth is, for many of them, life wasn't so bad. They were out of the war, they were well-fed, and they were cared for, and many of them, after the war, chose to stay here and remain in America as their new home. But they were living as strangers in a foreign land. The passage that we're going to look at today is like that as well, where Daniel and his friends were taken into captivity in Babylon. They were uprooted from their home, uh, everything that they knew living in Israel, and they are now taken to live in a foreign land. When the Babylonians conquered Judah, they did so in three waves. Uh, And that first wave was around the year 606-605 B.C., where the Babylonians came in and they carried off the nobility and kind of the elite, those who were well-educated, and Daniel and his friends were in this group of people, and they were brought back to Babylon to be educated there. 
A few years later, there would be a second wave where the Babylonians came in and they uh, deported many of the common people and began to make their changes in the land. And finally, when Israel tried to rebel one more time, the third wave came in, 586 B.C. And it was in that time that they leveled the city, they destroyed the temple, and they broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Many were killed, just as Ezekiel had prophesied. A third would die by the sword. A third would die by famine, the suffering from the siege that took place. And a third were carried off into captivity or scattered throughout the land. Daniel and his friends were taken some 700 miles from their home to live in a new land among a foreign people with a foreign language and foreign gods. In Psalm 137, verse 1, there is a picture of what that was like when it said that by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Here they were, they were brought into captivity, and when they thought about all that had happened and how God had allowed this nation to literally overrun them as a people and destroy everything that they loved, they wept, they wept when they remembered Zion. And we can understand that, how hard it must have been for them. Uh, Daniel uh, and his friends were likely teenagers at this point, And they were living as aliens in a foreign land. Now some might say on the plus side, you could look at it that they were getting a free college education. You know, kind of free tuition, room and board. But it was more like indoctrination. They were being brought to Babylon to study a new culture to learn and adopt a new worldview and a new religion. Babylon had its own forms of political correctness and sensitivity training, and these young men were being forced through this program in order to learn Babylonian ways. So what would they do? Would they uh, give in to the culture around them? Would they just kind of cave in and accept what they were being taught? That would have been the easiest thing to do. Or would they stand firm in their relationship with God and risk the consequences of their choices? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. And the question I'd like us to think about is, what can we learn from Daniel and his friends about living as holy people in an unholy culture? All right, I'd like you to take a look at Daniel chapter 1. It's on page 249 if you have your copy of the story. And I'd like to read for us Daniel 1, verses 1 to 6. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. And these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. And then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. 
Now this was Nebuchadnezzar's policy, was to bring in these young men from nations that they captured, not just Israel, and to bring them and run this, them through this particular re-education program that he had planned. But what we see in Daniel and his friends is that we are to resist the world's pressure to conform. We are to resist the pressure of this world to conform to its values and its teaching when it contradicts what God has said in his word. Daniel and his friends were under enormous pressure to conform. Babylon was a magnificent city. We are told uh, historically, and, and some of these things, I've got to say, you know, it's just incredible to imagine. Babylon was a city with walls that were built 300 feet high. That would be like a 30-story building. The walls of the city were 14 miles on each side. That would be like building a wall from Lindstrom to Taylor's Falls. And you can think of Babylon being along the Euphrates River, you know. Well, it would be like building it over to the St. Croix River and then building a wall down to Marine and coming back to Scandia and back up to Lindstrom. It was 56 miles in circumference and the city was inside of that. These walls were so huge that uh, they were 87 feet across at the top. You could ride chariots around the top of the walls of the city. They had 100 gates of solid brass where you could enter going in and out. 250 watchtowers stood above the walls where they could look out to see any approaching armies or danger. The gardens of Babylon were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. We read later in chapter 2 how uh, Nebuchadnezzar has this vision and this statue and uh, Daniel will say to him later in the interpretation that you are that head of gold. I mean, their empire was just an incredible empire of wealth, of strength, of power. And here is Nebuchadnezzar and he is thinking, you know, he's the greatest king in the world. And who's going to argue with him at that point? You know, uh, you can imagine these captives being brought into the city through the brass gates and they're looking up at these walls and they're looking at these magnificent buildings and the palaces and the gardens. And who are they? I mean, they're just captives living in a foreign land and they are here to learn Babylonian ways. The pressure they were under was enormous. It was intellectual pressure to adopt a new worldview. Three years of instruction, it's like a college course, uh, you know, that, or program that they're going to be put through. They are learning from the wisest men in the world and their age who are gathered there in Babylon. There was religious pressure that was designed to get them to stop worshiping their gods and to begin to worship the Babylonian gods. And even in battle, you know, these taunts would be given. I mean, what God can save you from our hands? And the Babylonians, because of their might and their power, thought that they were the greatest people, the greatest gods in the world. There was personal pressure to conform. Even their identity was changed. If you look at uh, verses 6 and 7, you get an example of that. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
And the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. And to Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. And we read those names, and they probably don't mean that much to us right away, but I want to point out something significant about them. For these young Hebrews, their names all had a reference to God. You see the endings El, which means God, or Ah, which refers to Yahweh. And so Daniel's name means the Lord is my judge, or God is my judge. Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. Mishael means who is what God is, or who is like the Lord. And Azariah means the Lord helps, Yahweh helps. And the king of Babylon is saying, that's not going to do. We don't use those names around here. We're going to give you new names. And so Daniel was called Belteshazzar, which means prince of Baal, a pagan god. And Hananiah was given the name Shadrach, which means at the command of Aku, the moon god. And Mishael, whose name means who is what God is, was given the name Meshach, who is what Aku is. And to to Azariah, the Lord helps, he was given the name Abednego, which means servant of Nego, another pagan god. And so this kind of reorientation was taking place, this brainwashing, if you will. Nebuchadnezzar was sharp. He was going to convert these young men to his ways or they were not going to serve in his kingdom. You look at that and you think, what were they going to do? What would they do? How would they respond to the pressure that they felt? Well, let me ask you the question. Do you ever feel pressured to conform to the world and its values? You know, we'd be naive to think otherwise. That pressure is all around us to conform to the world and what it says is right or correct at this point in history. And it affects us every day through media, movies, peer pressure, through things that we see and read or hear. I think of students who go off to college at a secular university At that secular university are individuals who really will challenge your faith, and literally there are those who want you to give up your faith. We face peer pressure. Uh, Students face it in particular, probably more than we do as adults, but it affects all of us. It's peer pressure in the schools to conform to the world's values, its standards of what they think is right and wrong, or to go with the crowd and follow what they are doing. But in business, there can be the pressure, too, to lie on an expense account or the pressure that says, just, just go along with what's being done, even though it may be questionable. There's a pressure in terms of sexual purity today, where instead of doing what God says, our, our youth are pressured to follow again the world in that area. Uh, young people live together before marriage when God says, no, we are to wait until marriage. In all of these areas, there's a pressure. TV and movies today portray the, quote, new normal. And if you don't agree with the new normal, then you are narrow-minded and bigoted, and you are just out of touch with what's going on in this world. And if we don't think it affects us, again, we are just being very naive. 
And I think sometimes it's good for us to look back at what's happened even over the past 40 or 50 years, those of you that are old enough to remember some of those things. And the changes in these different areas are shocking when you look at what has happened through the years. One man has said, what is shown on TV and in movies today will be accepted in 10 years as normal in our culture. They keep pushing the envelope. They keep kind of trying to shock and go a little bit farther in each of these areas. And you know what? Over time, it's like the frog in the kettle. We become desensitized to it and it becomes normal in our world and in people's thinking. Just this past week, we saw an example of the bias that there is against a biblical worldview. Louis Giglio, who's an evangelical pastor, was asked to give the benediction at President Obama's inauguration. And then he was later uninvited when a watchdog group, a liberal watchdog group, discovered that he had given a sermon on homosexuality where he called homosexual behavior a sin. Uh, They went back in kind of the sermon archives and messages that he had given. And actually this particular message was just saying what the scripture says. It was a grace-filled message. It wasn't saying that this is the only sin or worst of sins. It just put it in context of saying what the scripture says. But because that's out of step with the political correctness and the thinking right now, it would have been an embarrassment for him to be giving the benediction, and so he was asked not to do that. And he stepped back and declined that invitation. And he was replaced on the program by a pastor who is pro-homosexual and who supports gay marriage. Is there a pressure to conform to our world standards? Yes, there is in many different areas. And what are we going to do when we feel that pressure? Will we just go along with the crowd or will we stand firm on what God has said? You know, we've been talking about this as a staff and I think, again, one of the things that we need to remember is that in America we've kind of lived in a bubble for a number of years where we have had religious freedom where we've been able to be a Christian and it really hasn't cost us much at all. But that day is changing. And those things are moving over where when we think about what may happen in the future as we continue down this road, just simply to speak and say what the Scripture says may get you in trouble. And it may be considered as hate speech or it may be considered as uh, too divisive or controversial. And if you don't, go along with the Babylonian line and our worldview, then you're in trouble. You're in trouble and you are an outsider. So what did Daniel do? Well, in verse 8, it says that Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Daniel objected to what was being done. He did not want to eat the king's food, not because he was a vegetarian, but because it violated the kosher laws that God had given in his word. And so Daniel rejected this rich food, but I want you to note that he did it respectfully. 
His supervisor who was over him was concerned that he would get in trouble if these guys weren't eating the food that was provided for them. And Daniel suggested, just give us a test. Give us 10 days. We'll eat the fruits and vegetables, and then you see how we look at the end of 10 days. And what happened was that they looked healthier and better nourished than the other young men. And what happened as a result in verse 17... It says that to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. God gave them wisdom. God honored their commitment. They chose to honor God, and God honored them by giving them wisdom and knowledge that was far superior to any of the other men. And when the time came when the king interviewed them to see if they were fit to serve in his service... He found them ten times better than all of the others. Now, I don't believe that that was just their own intelligence or skills. I believe that God honored them because they had chosen to honor him. And there is a clarity, there is an insight, there's a wisdom that God gives when we choose to put him first in our life. And he gave them insight to understand the times and to know what God was doing what he was up to and to be able to speak that truth into the world in which they lived. They resisted the world's pressure to conform and so must we. And secondly, what we see in their example is that they refused to bow down to any other gods. I'm going to skip ahead to chapter 3, page 254 in the story. And we read another story here where it said in chapter 3, verse 1, that King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And he then summoned the satraps and prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. It'd be like, you know, our president calling the senators, congressmen, all the governors and other leaders and officials, his cabinet, and everybody to come. And so they all came and they assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And in verse 4 it said, Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, lyre, harp, pipes, all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So there you have it. Nebuchadnezzar makes an image of himself 90 feet tall. He commands everyone to worship him. And Daniel and his friends would not, or Daniel's friends would not bow down and worship him. In this particular story, Daniel must have been out of the country at the time. Maybe he was on an assignment of the king somewhere, but he was not present at this dedication service, and we don't know exactly why. But Daniel's friends would not bow down and worship this idol. And when they made that decision, they didn't know what would happen to them. Would God rescue them or would they die? And they were prepared to die rather than bow down to any other God. And in verse 17, when the king had them brought and threatened to be thrown into the fire, they made this statement. 
They said, if we are thrown into the blazing fire, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. They drew a line in the sand. They took their stand. And they said they knew that God is able to rescue them. But they didn't know if he would. And they were willing to die even if he did not. You know, that's where we live. We live in this lower story world where we don't know what the outcome may be in this life. Whether by God's grace, he will spare us and deliver us from those kind of trials or whether he'll take us through it and bring us to glory. Upper story, God is at work. He has his plans and purposes and he will be honored and glorified. And what he asks of us is to be a people who are faithful and obedient to what he asks. And in this story, God rescued them. A fourth man appeared with them in the furnace who had the appearance like a God. We believe it was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, the Son of God. And he protected them. And when Nebuchadnezzar called them out of the fire, there wasn't even the smell of smoke on them. They were unharmed, unsinged. Because of their courage, God was glorified. And in verse 29, Nebuchadnezzar issued this decree. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego should be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. What was God doing? He was bearing witness to the truth that he alone is God. What will we do when the time of crisis comes? Where will we stand? In the mid-1500s, there were two men, Nicholas Ridley and Thomas Latimer, who were ardent pastors and reformers in England. Ridley was the Bishop of London. He was an advisor to kings, and he had the unfortunate job of being an advisor to Henry VIII and to his successor, Edward VI. He was also a close confidant of the Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, who wrote the Book of Common Prayer. Latimer was a fiery preacher who called for repentance and a genuine faith in God and his word. And when Mary Tudor came to power, Bloody Mary, as she was called, she had them arrested to be burned at the stake as heretics. And when the executioners lit the fire, Latimer turned to Ridley and he said, Be of good comfort, Dr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. These two men were willing to die for their faith. And they encouraged one another even as they were being bound to the stake where they would be burned. They did die that day. And the English revival was born. And by their death, they still speak. And thirdly, what we see in the scriptures and the example of Daniel and others is that we are to trust in God alone. We do not trust in men or in their opinions or how much they can change and vacillate. We trust in God alone, who is our strength. 
In Daniel chapter 6, we see another example where Daniel is put to the test. Daniel is a man of integrity. He's one of the few men in Scripture that we read about who has no flaws that are, are told. I mean, he's just a man of character, integrity. He is faithful in his commitment to God, in his prayer and devotion. Uh, even his contemporaries like Ezekiel spoke of his character and integrity. And Ezekiel would say in chapter 14, verse 14, that even if Noah and Daniel and Job were present, God would not have spared this city. Noah, Daniel, and Job. He listed him there with these other men of character and obedience. And so Daniel's enemies know that the only way that they could bring a charge against Daniel would be in relation to his God. So they came up with an idea in chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. They brought this idea to the king. The administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and they said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue a decree, uh, issue an edict and enforce a decree that anyone who prays to any other god or man during the next 30 days except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. And now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. It's been a change in government. The Babylonians now have been conquered by the Persians. There's a new King Darius that is there, and Daniel faces a new test under this administration. What will he do? Daniel continued to pray to his God three times a day. And because of that, he is brought before the king who is obliged to have him thrown into the lion's den. Now, the lion was a symbol of imperial strength and power. The lion, we even hear it, as referred to as the king of the beasts. And when a king hunted and killed a lion or when a king captured lions and kept them in captivity. It showed his supremacy as though he were over the king. Well, what did God do? When Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, he stopped the mouth of the lions. And through Daniel, God showed the Persian ruler that he alone is the king of kings. He is the mighty God, and he protects those whom he will. And Daniel was protected, we read in the scripture, because he trusted in his God. And once again, God was glorified. There is this principle in scripture that says that those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disdained. Over and over again, God reminds us of that through the example of these men who trusted in him. Those who honor me, I will honor but those who despise me will be disdained. Whose side would you rather be on? God's or the world's? How do we live as holy people in an unholy world? Well, that's a question that believers have been asking ever since the time of Daniel, but even before. And we are to resist the pressure of the world to conform. We are to refuse to bow down to any other God or God's and we are to trust in our God alone. 
James Montgomery Boyce wrote a book a number of years ago called Two Cities, Two Loves. It's kind of a rewrite of Augustine's City of God. Augustine wrestled with that question in the Roman period, and we wrestle with it today. How do we live as holy people in an unholy world? And what I liked about James Boyce's book is that he listed three simple things that all of us can do as we live for Christ in this world. Number one is participation. That even by our presence, we are a savoring influence to the world around us. You know, by our participation, what he means is that we are not to pull back as Christians. We're not to kind of circle the wagons and kind of pull out of all areas, but we are to engage the world in a godly way. And we need Christians in every area of life as teachers, as scientists, as doctors, as businessmen and women, as politicians, as uh, researchers, or people in TV and media. We need Christians out there because just by our presence, we are a savoring influence just like Daniel was in his world. And secondly, there is persuasion. We are to proclaim the truth of God's Word. We are to speak the truth in love. We're to do it with respect, but don't ever be ashamed of the Gospel. Don't ever be ashamed of the Word of God or to speak truth into the conversations that you are having at work and at school. And be a person who uses your skills and your gifts and abilities to persuade others to come to Christ to check out the Scripture, to see what God has said for themselves. And thirdly, pray. By prayer, we have a powerful influence on our world. And we are to pray for our world and the people we know. We are to pray at all times in the power of the Holy Spirit, trusting God to work and to do what we cannot. And I look at those three things, and I think in a, in a very simple way, what God is asking us to do is to live for Christ, to speak the truth, and to be a people who pray. Can we do that? Yes, we can. Will we do that? I pray that we will, by God's grace. Let's pray. Father, you've placed each of us in this world to have an influence on the people around us. And when we leave from Sunday morning and go into our work week, we are scattered throughout this community and down in the metro area as well. And Father, I pray that you would give all of us the courage that we need to be a Daniel, to live in such a way that others can see Christ in us, to not compromise or just go along with the world, but to speak the truth of your word, to live with conviction in a way that is honoring to you and that is respectful to people around us, but is not ashamed to share the truth of your word. Father, would you be pleased to use us, whatever the consequences may be. Help us to take our stand and live for you. Amen.